Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen, amen, amen. Y'all grab a seat and if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. Someone in the room has been praying for rain. I, uh, I really like your style. You might ease up just a bit. Um, we had a fun time this morning bringing my canoe into church. Uh, I just want to say we have just such an awesome serving team. Uh, we have, it takes so many people to set up and to tear down and to just work behind the scenes to serve a church and especially a portable church. It takes, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 115 uh, servant leaders that show up every week to uh, help set up and tear down and to teach kids classes and to worship and lead us in worship with the band and to uh, do uh, all the video and the live stream. So uh, thank you so much to those of you who showed up early in the torrential downpour to serve. And if that wasn't you, I just want you to be really grateful and maybe even say thank you to one of them on your way out for uh, their sacrifice showing up to help us be able to gather this morning. Uh, I've got a lot of ground to cover and I'm going to move fairly quickly. So I did want to remind you, you may not even know this, but if you go to our app, uh, we have a notes section. And so uh, you can follow along in the notes there. You can take your own notes and save those. And there is a lot of scriptures that we're going to reference as well. All of those are not going to be on the screen, but they're all in the notes, and I would highly encourage you to spend some time this week and to go back and uh, even spend a little bit more time looking at what we are talking about this morning, Uh, because we've talked about this many, many times. Most uh, potent book in human history is the Bible. Uh, Maybe the most important book in the Bible is the book of Romans, the most impactful chapter is chapter 8, and we're today looking at this idea of adoption, which is the nucleus of the gospel. If you want to understand what Christianity is all about or who you are in Christ, a key component to that is for you to understand the concept of adoption, that God has adopted us, and that's the text that we're looking at today in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, and especially if you've been in church for a while, I just hope that this reality never gets old, Um, that maybe even the Lord would revive your heart with it a fresh time, that maybe you've heard it for for years, maybe even for decades, that you're a child of God, that God has adopted you. I'm praying this morning that the Holy Spirit would make it something just fresh and that you would feel the weight of what has actually happened to us through the gospel in Christ. So if that's, uh, if you're willing to agree with me to that end, say ready. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 through 17 is all about adoption and it says this, for all 
Every single one, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Just a very small section that we're looking at, but such incredible implications for you and I as followers of Christ that we've been adopted. And so I only have one point, but I have 13 subpoints. so don't get your hopes up too much. When the Bible talks about adoption, you have to know that uh, it, it's relating spiritual adoption, this, this event or this miracle that's taken place where God has adopted humans into his family. Uh, it, it's not talking about what normally comes to mind for us when we hear about adoption. Adoption in the first century was very different than adoption in uh, especially the West right now. Um, So there were not organizations in Israel that were trying to mobilize people to adopt orphans for the sake of that child. That's not what adoption was. Most of the time, adoption was uh, when someone, especially if they had an estate or if they had um, uh, plenty of money and land and they did not have an heir to uh, take those things when they passed on, they did not have someone in their lineage then they would go find an adult. Normally it was not, adoption was not a child. They would adopt an adult that they wanted to give their name and give their rights to their inheritance. And so the fact that God would in fact do that with us when you look at adoption through a first century lens is unbelievably profound. Um, and, and when you take that idea of like just looking for someone to bring in, the, to, to, to give your name and your, your inheritance and your wealth and be the heir of all things, and then the Bible says that God God has done that with us, uh, it's really unbelievably staggering. So in Christianity, um, it's for someone in the first century to adopt a child, and especially an orphan, was a very rare thing because that orphan brought nothing to the table. And so if, if, if the Bible talks about us as spiritual orphans and that God has adopted us and invited us in, what that is saying is that he chose to do that strictly because he wanted something to give. He didn't need anything from us. We don't bring anything to the table. He just invites us in because of his goodness and because of his love. If you want to understand the gospel, you need to understand adoption. One of the most succinct Uh, explanations or or summaries of the gospel that I can find is in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5. It's on the screen here for you. This is about as succinct a summary of the gospel as there is. And this is what Paul says. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, which is exactly what Romans 8 says has just happened to us if we are in Christ. So what I'm about to say, the points that we're about to make, just piecing together all these different aspects of these four verses, 14 through 17, if you're a Christian, these things are all true of you right now. Even if you don't feel like they are, if you're in Christ, it 
feelings will come and go, but the promises have come to stay. All of these things are true of you if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that all of these things can be true of you when you walk out of here today if you will believe in Jesus, if you will put your faith in Christ. Because Jesus' best friend, the Apostle John, in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, told us this promise. So you need to know if you're not a Christian that these things are a promise to you as well if you will believe. John says this, he says, he, Jesus, came to his own, meaning he was born inside of the, the nation of Israel. He came as a Jew. That was the, 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 the group of people that God had uh, uh, really put his love in a special way on. Jesus came to his own people. He loved them for, for centuries in a special way. And by and large, they rejected him. He says, uh, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. All things adoption is what we're looking at this morning. What does adoption then mean to us if we're looking through Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14? Number one, it means that we are now adopted by God which seems very simple, but I hear people all the time uh, really kind of, especially when, when they kind of in our culture want to strive towards unity, um, I'll hear people say, well, aren't we all just children of God? Uh, aren't all people just by virtue of being humans, aren't we all children of God? And the very short answer is no, we're not. In fact, Jesus looked at some people one day and said that they were children of Satan. That's a different family. So like, there, there, there's, there's two families. There's the family of Satan and the family of God. How do you get in the family of God? You're adopted into the family of God. No one starts there, right? No one just, you know, this is not an accurate testimony really for any of us that, well, I was just, I was born a Christian. I've always been a Christian. That's not the case. We have to be adopted in. How do we get adopted in? When the Holy Spirit leads us to the gospel where we then understand and we believe, put our faith in Jesus, and then we're adopted by the Father. It's incredibly important that we understand the only people that are true children of God are those who have been adopted by God. Number one, we are now adopted by God. Number two, we have received adoption. I don't know if you caught that in the, uh, in the verb usage but he talks about this as being something that we have received. He says, we have received the spirit. We have not received the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption. And that verb received, is a, it's an aorist tense, meaning it's a very passive thing, that it's not something we actively lay hold of. It's something we just passively have received. One of my sisters uh, has adopted two small girls. They were both infants, newborns when they adopted them. And what those two little girls did is that they received adoption. They didn't achieve anything. They didn't contribute. They didn't work towards it. They didn't pick their parents. They didn't contribute financially. They didn't help with paperwork. All they were is 100% receivers of something that happened external to them. Listen, if you're a Christian, you may not know this, um, but this is important for us to understand. How in the world did we become Christians? How were we adopted into the family of God? We received adoption. 
And I know that there's like a tension between our actions and our responsibility and what God does in his sovereignty. So especially when you're, when you're first coming to Christ, you feel like you just kind of have made a choice and you've chosen God. But then over time, you realize that that was all really the work of the Holy Spirit, that he was the one doing the work and he was the one adopting and his Holy Spirit just made us aware of something that we in fact have received. Paul is unbelievably clear that his adoption, that it's not something that we achieve, it's something that we receive. So the question is, if number two is true, if we have received adoption, how did that happen? Maybe you pose that question. Maybe you ask yourself, well, I thought I was the one that chose. I thought, Jason, you said, like, hey, this is the gospel. I want you to choose to believe. Number three, the Holy Spirit led us here. How did we get to be adopted? How did you get into the family of God? And the very short answer is that the Holy Spirit is the one who led us. Go back and look at verse 14. It says, for all. Everybody say all. Everybody say it one more time. All. For all. Every single one, no more, no less. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How many people, when the Holy Spirit leads them, how many of them get adopted into the family? All of them. This is, this is so miraculous, and it puts you in such a humble place because you realize that even in making a choice to, to, to love and to serve and to worship Jesus and to repent of your sins and believe in him was all because the Holy Spirit was moving and working and leading. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no man can come to the Father unless the Holy No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up the last day. There's something in that's so broken in our heart and our soul that we can't even make a good choice unless the Holy Spirit leads us. This is why it's such a strange thing to preach because I know when I'm preaching, like in some essence, if you're preaching to somebody that's not a Christian, you're preaching to a graveyard, right? Because um, the the Bible talks about people um, before having the Holy Spirit were dead in our trespasses and sins. And and so it's like we're just preaching and just hoping that the Holy Spirit will lead someone and cause someone to come back to life. It's like when Jesus, do you remember the story of Jesus and Lazarus? Anybody? Lazarus was dead, Fully dead, four days in the grave, stinking dead. And Jesus shows up and he just shouts into the graveyard, Lazarus, come forth. And I love what one commentator said. He said, praise God, Jesus said Lazarus, because if he would have just said come forth, the entire graveyard would have come walking out. So Jesus physically just said, Lazarus, get up, and made him alive again. That's the only way people respond to the gospel, if the Holy Spirit causes them to come alive. No one can come to Jesus. He said himself, unless the Holy Spirit who sent him draws you. All that are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, no more, no less. Which this has implications for you. I know many of you, you have friends and you have family that you desperately want them to become Christians. You know that Jesus has made a difference in your life. He's changed things in your life, in your soul, in your relationships. And you know that you have this mandate to make disciples and to share the gospel and for evangelism. And so you desperately want your friends to come to faith. Two things I want to encourage you towards. Share the gospel with them and pray that the Holy Spirit would lead them. Because without the Holy Spirit, we cannot be led to adoption. 
how many times do you think I've asked my children if they wanted ice cream that they turned it down? Zero. Why is that? Because it's a logical question. If I ask them if they want ice cream, it's just very logical. Every kid would say yes. This is what kind of gives you a category to understand because I'm perplexed all the time when you share the gospel with some, someone and you talk about all the incredible blessings and things that might happen to them if they would just believe. You're like, listen, Jesus will forgive all of your sins. He'll change your life. He'll, you're, you're not a slave to sin anymore. He, he deals with your shame and your guilt. Doesn't that sound awesome? And he'll take you to heaven where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Like you kind of lay out before this, and it's like it just seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Like, um, do you want to go to heaven or hell? Do you want to be forgiven or not? Do you want to have a, the path of life? Or, like it just makes so much sense when you present this to people. So how in the world is it that if somebody is presented this just very simple decision like Jesus will change your life and your eternity. Do you want to, do you want to believe? And people are like, no, no, not, not really. Why is that? It seems like a logical thing. And while it may be a logical decision, it's a spiritual decision that the Holy Spirit leads. So pray for the Holy Spirit to lead people to be adopted. The Holy Spirit led us here. That's how we got here. Number four, we are all sons. We are all sons. This is how the Apostle Paul said it. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, in our culture, um, Sometimes we're, we're very prone and quick to try to change things, especially pronouns, um, because in our culture we really don't like the idea of gender-specific pronouns, especially if they're the masculine, because we don't want to uh, push aside women and make them feel like they're any, any less. And, you know, uh, there's some places in the Bible where it's just a, a term like mankind that refers to everyone. But we have to be really careful when we kind of tweak and mess with the Bible because God wrote things down specifically for a purpose. And I think, women, you're going to... I, I, you're going to be surprised at what Paul is in fact saying when he is calling all of us sons because it's not accurate and it's not helpful and it doesn't feel the full weight of what has happened in the gospel to say that we're all sons and daughters. That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't use the gender uh, kind of just children. We're not just all children of God. He says very purposefully that we're all sons of God. Because in the first century, uh, females, they were not adopted. They did not have really the rights to any of the inheritance. Um, If their parents died, then all of that went to the sons. And so if Paul were to say that women have become daughters of God, then in their society, that would still be a second-class position. They would not still be equal with the men. But what Paul says is that every person, both man and woman, that is adopted by God gets full rights and full sonship. And that was an unbelievably radical thing for him to say in the first century. For him to say a woman that comes to faith and is adopted has the exact same standing, the exact same rights as as the firstborn male in the same family because we've all received sonship. It's wildly radical. It's elevating women to the exact same plane as men. It's not sexist. In fact, it's putting them in the first century in the highest possible cultural category that there was. 
So I just want to say, we've got to be careful when we just tweak the Bible even in small ways. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, women should not resent being called sons any more than men should resent being called the bride of Christ. Christians are all sons, and they're all the bride. He says, God is very even-handed in his use of metaphors. So this means that we are all sons. Number five, it means we all have security. It's right there in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you're secure. There's a difference between a son and a slave. There's a difference between a son and an employee. If you're an employee, there's always kind of this looming uh, feeling that if you mess up, if you don't perform, that you can get what? You can get fired. And that's what causes this kind of fear for slaves, this fear of, of punishment, this fear that you have to perform. And it's very different if you're a child, that you're released from that fear, that you're secure. My, my, my children have never once in their life questioned, even if they make bad decisions, whether they're still going to be in the family or not, because they know to be a child in a family is to be secure. They feel secure, and that's what a covenant does. A covenant that is not based on how we do and how we perform, but it's based on a promise that God has made to us, it releases us from that insecurity that, oh my gosh, I've got to do better today. He's going to be frustrated with me. If I, just, if I mess up, I'm going to lose my salvation. That's not the security that we've been given through adoption. If we're children of God, we have absolute security because of the covenant that God has made with us. It's the same way as the covenant of marriage. If the covenant of marriage is, is a true covenant that's not based on how well we perform in our marriage and, and, and divorce is completely taken off the table, it's not even an option. Imagine the type of security that that brings to the relationship that allows you to be truly honest. You don't have to hide anything. You don't have to pretend because you know it's a safe and secure place for you to be known and to be loved. That's what a, that's what a covenant does. It breeds security. So if you're, if you're adopted in Christ, you're not going to be disowned any more than my kids are if they mess up. You are secure. You're absolutely secure. Number six, we have a new identity. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We have a new identity. In our culture, if you're adopted, then you go through a legal process where you are, your name is legally changed. You legally get uh, to be part of the family, and you're somewhat associated. Your identity is in relation to your parents and your new family. Well, we, we've talked about this so much over the years, that our identity is not in our success and our failures, that Paul labored throughout his whole life to remind himself that his identity was found in Christ. If you're adopted into God's family, you have a complete new identity. Anybody ever seen the Born Identity series? I love any kind of movie like that where uh, somebody's like a secret agent and they just get handed this packet that's like their new identity and they begin studying it and it's like it tells them they have a new past and they have a new wife, which I don't want. They have a new, like this was my educational background. This is what I love. This is where I live. And they're just kind of memorizing that because it's a brand new identity. It's like in Christ, when you're adopted, you get a brand new identity. You're now in relation to God the Father, not in relation to uh, your, your, your actions or your old family. In adoption, you have been given an absolutely brand new identity and a brand new name. Number seven is right there in verse 15 as well. If you're adopted by God, you have access. 
You have access that a slave does not, that an employee does not. This is not a true story, but I could see it happening. So let's pretend I was in my office and I, was, I put up a do not disturb sign and I was studying intently. The door flings open right in the middle of my most intense moment. I look over and it's Chase. Does anybody know Chase? <laughs> Pastor Chase, I'm like, Chase? I said, do not disturb. Like, if, if, I, if I were to get up, I'm like, Chase is coming. I turn over, and it's my, my six-year-old son, Hudson. I'm like, oh, God, come on in, buddy. You know, if, if it's Chase, I probably might treat him a little differently than if it was Hudson. Why? Because kids have different access. Kids ha- can do things. They can get away with things that employees cannot. Paul is saying that we have access to the Father like a kid that nobody else has. This is how Keller puts it. He says, the only person... Who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. He says, we have that kind of access. Could you imagine an employee or a servant coming into a king's room at 3 a.m. and waking him up for a glass of water? No, but a a child, his, his own son, his own daughter, can get away with that because they have been granted access. They have a special piece of the father's heart that others do not have. We have access. This is why the scriptures say, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? Because we can. Because we have access. This should change the way that you pray. This should change the things that you ask for. This should change the timing. And just everything is now fair game for your interaction and prayer with your father because you have unlimited, unfettered access. Number eight, we have intimacy. Everybody say Abba. But say it again with more gusto. Abba. Abba. This is an important word. This is an important concept to understand. Abba is an Aramaic word, so it's probably, and it's a transliteration. So it wasn't translated, it was just transliterated. So that's probably the exact same word that Jesus used. We don't have to translate it, we just re- repeat it. That when Jesus was talking about the Father, he changed the term and used a term that was much more familial than the average Jewish person would use. It means daddy. It doesn't mean father. It means like papa or daddy. And in, Jewish, in, in Jesus' day in the first century, virtually no Jewish, Jewish person would even conceive of talking about God as daddy. That was too close. That was too intimate that was too relational. They, they, they would refer to him in, in this the, uh, potter, this like very, very uh, official term of father. But Jesus comes on the scene and he changes the game. When he's ta- in, in, in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus is, is crying out as a child would cry out to a, a, a daddy, he, he says in the garden, Mark 14, 36, he says, Abba, Father. He says, Papa, Daddy, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. But if not, nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And, and, and so this, 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 this truth that Paul picks up on, He says that if you've been adopted, you don't have to just call God Father and think that he's so far and he's so so unrelatable that you can't talk to him as daddy. Paul says, no, we have been given the right because we've been adopted to refer to him as Abba, as, as daddy. That's the word that a small child would use, a papa daddy, when he crawls up in the lap of his father. I I think... There, there might be a way in which many of you know God as Father, 
but not as Abba. Like you know him as father, he's, he's good, he, 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 he protects me, he provides for me, I respect him. But you don't necessarily see him and, and feel him and pray to him as Abba, as, as daddy. I, I don't know why this happened, but in the last two weeks, two of my children, separate from one another, have, have asked me really the same type of question. And I don't know where this came from, but they've been, they've been praying. Uh, in fact, I prayed with my youngest last night, and uh, it's been a long day, and I was tired, and I prayed for him. And he said, Daddy, when I pray, uh, mine are a lot longer. <laughs> I said, praise God, buddy, you're learning. But the other two children, they asked me separately um, the same question. They said, is God always serious? I said, is God always serious? Basically like this idea of do you always have to be very serious and very somber when you talk to God? And my answer was, well, is dad always serious? See, if if you only see God as father and not as Abba, it would be much like, you know, if, 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 if a mother had to talk to their children before she went into the room to see their dad and say, hey, just remember, when you talk to dad, do not smile, do not laugh, be serious, be somber, right? Some of you, that's how you view God. Like there can't be any joy, no laughter, no, like you have this respect, which is a good thing. So I'm not asking you to remove any of the respect of a father, but you can add to it that you see him as Abba, that, that, that he, he, he's a dad that you can crawl up in his lap, that there's no request too big, there's no request too small. There's nothing that you're going to bring to God and he's going to be like, you know what, I don't have time to deal with this right now because he is an Abba. Do we respect and, and treat God, our Father, with respect? Absolutely, just like I want my children to treat me with respect. But can they laugh and have a good time and enjoy a relationship where they cuddle up in his lap and call him daddy? Absolutely. Jesus uses both often. He says, Abba, Father. It's both. He's accessible and he's to be respected. We have intimacy and that too, if we can cry out. And that word cry, any any of you ever had a kid that cried? Let me rephrase that. Any of you ever had a kid? They cry. They just tell you what they need and what, and, what, and what they want. And sometimes it's not pre-rehearsed. It's just coming through their feelings and their emotions. And they just let daddy know. They let mama know. <laughs> like Paul just said that. He didn't say we talk to God. He says we cry out. We're able to cry out, Abba, Father. We have intimacy with our daddy. When you pray, maybe it's a good thing to remind yourself as you begin to pray. Don't just say Father, but say Abba Father, say Daddy Father, say Papa Father. Number nine, we have assurance. We have assurance. This is verse 16. He says, the Spirit himself, the Spirit that that led us to Christ, that is the one that moved in our hearts to help us know we needed Jesus. And then after we believe, he then resides in us. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. That Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Because I think inevitably there's going to be moments in your life where you might doubt. You might doubt if you're a child of God. And this says that you have assurance. Why? Because the Holy Spirit inside of you will testify to yourself. He said, no, no, you are. Because of what Jesus has done, God has adopted you. When your feelings wane, listen to the Spirit. The Spirit, in fact, bears witness. And that's a legal term that means he's an expert witness that when he says something, it really doesn't matter what you say. 
Like if you have these feelings that are up and down, but he bears witness to the, on this eternal throne to the king on high, say, no, they're with me. They belong to you. That's what it means. He's giving us assurance that he bears witness with our spirits that we are, in fact, children of God. Number 10, we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance, if you've been adopted, then you not only have been adopted, you also get this inheritance. It's verse 17. And if you're children, then you're heirs. You're heirs of God and you're fellow heirs with Christ. Which means, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that there are unbelievable reasons to follow Jesus in this life. I don't, I don't think 100% of the reason you should follow Jesus is because of eternity, is because of heaven, although that's a nice thing. I think there is enough blessing. In fact, it says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing right now in Christ. But the, the, the inheritance that we have been promised because we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, there's blessings now, absolutely, but you have an incredible future. An incredible future. In the first century... There was only one child normally that would be given the inheritance because if they had a, a, like a, a, a lot of, of land that they owned and a lot of money, uh, they would, they would want to keep kind of the dynasty going and so they would not want to split up the inheritance and splinter things and fracture things. So if they had, let's say, 10 kids, they would not want each one of them to have one-tenth because that would destroy the, the family's uh, inheritance. And so they would just give the inheritance to the oldest son. And for Paul here to say that every child of God has been given an inheritance, that's him to say somehow, some way, we have all been given the lion's share. We have all stepped into the role of the oldest son and we have been given the inheritance just as if we were Jesus himself. That's what it means to be co-heirs with Christ. Whatever God has prepared for his son, Jesus, he is willing to share with you. How many of you think that's good news? Nobody. (laughs) You have been given an inheritance If your father was a billionaire, would you be excited about what's coming to you? Everybody say yes. Yes. What if your your father was the one who created all the billionaires? Would you be excited about the inheritance that is yours? Yes. No more death, no more tears, no more crying. A a house in heaven. (laughs) Who does that go to? God's kids. How do you get in? You're either his son or you're adopted. When you're adopted in, you get the full inheritance. And a new body. How many of you would like a new body? You're like, that canoe ride in this morning hurt my back. I need a new body. Praise God, that's part of your inheritance. I don't even know all of the things because it's so hard to understand what heaven is going to be like and what uh, creation without the curse is going to be like. I, I, I can't even go down the trail of trying to explain to you the inheritance. I just know you will not be disappointed. Amen? You have an inheritance in Christ. Number 11. We will suffer with Jesus. If you have been adopted into God's family, we will be treated like God's family, especially on this earth, we will be treated as our older brother Jesus was treated. And what did it say that Paul said to Christians? This is something that is promised to us. If you're children, then you're heirs, you're heirs of God and your fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. I want to really hammer this one home because 
I, I would not be doing justice to you as a pastor, as a friend, as a, a, an honest Bible teacher, it, it be, if I were not to prepare you to suffer well. Because there's, there's two ways that kind of Christians get uh, off, off track on the idea of suffering. One is this idea that like the more you suffer, the more godly you are. And it's almost like life is only suffering, this kind of masochistic idea that we should inflict suffering on ourselves. You know, kind of uh, there's been sects throughout history that have just even like flogged themselves because they think if they suffer more, then God's more pleased with them. That's strange. That's weird. That's not biblical. We're not called to enjoy suffering. If you enjoy suffering, like there's something wrong, right? We're not called to enjoy suffering. We're called to endure suffering. That's very different. But one side uh, that we can get off in is just like everything in life is suffering. I don't think that's true. There's some incredible blessings that we have in Christ. The other side is kind of put in this word of faith movement that, listen, it it says, and a lot of you, you you follow blogs and you've been reading this and you need to know what the Bible says. and, And this movement will say, listen, if you love Jesus enough, if you have enough faith and your prayers are filled with enough true faith, you will not suffer. That's not what Paul said. If you buy into that, it's going to shipwreck your faith, especially when inevitably suffering comes. Because you'll do what the church that Peter was talking to, you'll be so surprised. Like, I don't, I'm so surprised. I thought it was going to be smooth sailing, and now all the suffering, God must not love me. He must not care for me. He must not answer prayers. My prayers must not be full of faith. And Peter, when he's talking to people suffering in 1 Peter, says, hey, don't be surprised when the fiery, fiery suffering comes upon you. So Paul says, if you're adopted into the family, you're going to have, at least in this life, some of the family likeness, meaning you're going to be treated the same way Jesus was treated. It means if we're in the family, we need to be prepared to suffer. I want to I really drive this home because... There's such strong pushes in our culture on both sides. We need to have a very biblical, a very accurate, a very strong theology of suffering if we're going to suffer well for the glory of Christ. Matthew 10, these are not on the screen. They are in the notes. I'm going to move through them very quickly. But I want you to hear how much the New Testament has to say about what Paul just invited us into. Okay, Paul phrased it this way. I'll read it one more time, and then I'll work through some of these scriptures. If you're children, if you're a Christian, you've been adopted in the family, your children, your heirs of God, and your co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38, he says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What does the cross represent? As the old hymn goes, it is the emblem of suffering and shame. This is what Jesus is saying. If you're not willing to suffer, you can't even follow Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 9. Jesus promises to his followers, just like me and you, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. He's talking to his disciples, which most of them were martyred. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. That doesn't fit into this word of faith movement that if you love Jesus enough, you're going to be complete unlike him. He's like, if you are part of the family, they're going to treat you the way they treated 
Jesus. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, this is when Jesus had already risen, the church had exploded, the Holy Spirit filled up uh, the, the, the disciples, they're, they're preaching, thousands of people are coming to faith, and then the persecution begins, the suffering begins, the beatings begin, the flogging commences, and they throw them in prison, and then Peter and John get out of prison, and they go back and talk to the rest of the disciples, they show up to the gathering on Sunday morning, and it says they left the presence of the council, that's the Jewish leaders that were persecuting the Christians, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. It says they, were, they counted, they like, oh my gosh, they're treating me like they treated Jesus. Like they, they came back and they didn't say, God must have forgot about us. He must not care. He must not answer prayers. We must not be full of faith. He, they, he, they came back and said, oh my gosh, praise God that he counted us worthy to be treated like our older brother. Acts chapter 20, verse 23, Paul says, the Holy Spirit testifies to him. He says, the Holy Spirit has told me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. The Holy Spirit told Paul. He didn't say that it was going to stop. He just prepared him that it was going to come. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, Paul says, we are afflicted. In every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. He's explaining what it was like to be a follower of Jesus. It included suffering. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 No one, he says, let no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. He's like, don't be moved. Don't let the suffering and the afflictions move you to think that your daddy does not know or does not care. This was destined for us. Jesus warned us about this. The Holy Spirit has prepared us to endure this. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed he doesn't separate the the suffering and the blessing he says sometimes they go together sometimes you suffer and in that suffering if it's for jesus you will be blessed first peter 3 17 for it is better to suffer for doing good can you suffer for doing good the bible says so even if you do the right thing you do good and you suffer it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be god's will 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, beloved, that means you are loved. Like that, that, that's, a, that's an endearing term, a child that's beloved by, by Abba, Father. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to their faithful creator while doing good. 2 Timothy 2, 3. Paul warns Timothy, his young protege. He prepares him and he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. If you're adopted into God's family in this life, there will be some element of suffering. Why? Because Jesus suffered. And we're part of his family. The world is going to treat us like it treated him. I think we should be much more concerned if we don't suffer. We don't invite it. And I think about this often in my place. You know, speaking, 
I don't know if you know this, but my words go on the internet. <laughs> That's not a safe place. Like, I, I think about this often. Like, if I'm not hated, maybe I'm not really pushing the envelope enough. Like, if I'm not hated by the world, am I really preaching the words of a man that was so offensive, both sides of the political aisle crucified him? Like, if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. That's part of what it means to be in a family. Praise God but Paul didn't just end it there, provided that you suffer with Christ. He keeps going. He says, provided that you suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If you suffer with Jesus, you're glorified with Jesus. Jesus said, if you're not willing to suffer with me, then you don't get to be glorified with me. What's the big idea? The big idea is that we're adopted into God's family. We become like Jesus and we follow his path. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We go where he went. He went through suffering and then he he, he suffered and then he was glorified. That's the pathway for the child of God that's been adopted. A pathway of suffering and then an eternity of glorification. 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11 says this, after you have suffered for a little while, and this is written by someone who suffered a lot. You know, when I talk about, and I read for myself what, what Peter and Paul and the disciples that talk about suffering, what they endured versus what I endure, it's almost like it just doesn't even seem fair to compare the two. So this is somebody that dealt with suffering much more than you or I ever will. He says, after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. You see how he says, suffering a little while, glory eternal. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul if you look through, I think, I believe it's 2 Corinthians 11, that's his resume of suffering. Uh, I'm just going to tell you this. It's worse than being made fun of on Facebook. <laughs> he was beaten basically within an inch of his life. It was only legal to, you couldn't, you couldn't beat somebody w- w- with a cat of nine tails 40 times because that was the equivalent of death. Uh, he endured it 39 times, multiple times. He was shipwrecked. He was bit by snakes. He was rejected by all sorts of people. He was uh, stoned, like where they thought he was dead. Like that, that, that's Paul that's about to say this. For this light momentary affliction... I wonder what he would call my affliction. Like if he called that light momentary affliction, and I don't want to, I don't want to downplay our suffering because all of our suffering, like if you're suffering in any way, it's real to you. And, that, and that's all you, so I, I don't want to downplay that, but I do want to say that it's staggering for Paul to be able to say this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. I think it's one verse later. It's Romans eight eighteen, I believe, so I'm stealing it from James. He gets to preach it next week. Paul says, I don't even consider the suffering worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. You don't, if you're a Christian, you don't have to understand that, but you need to believe that. I could not sit here and try to explain to you the glory that will be revealed through the sons of God but Paul says that it's not worthy to be compared to be being beaten within an inch of your life. Those who suffer with Jesus will be glorified with Jesus. That day is coming. 
the day is coming when the suffering makes sense. He's going to talk about childbirth, that the pain of childbirth is not fun, but after you have the kid, you look back like it was worth it. So if you're suffering, suffer well because the glory is coming and you're suffering like a good soldier right beside Jesus. That's number 12. Number 13, we inherit, if we're adopted into God's family, we inherit a heart like His. Sometimes we call this just this process of sanctification that we become like Jesus. We start to love what He loves, hate what He hates, do what He did. His hands and feet on the earth, doing what as, as the body of Christ, what His will is on earth. And I want to fast forward to a verse um, much later in the Bible to just explain this a little bit. We inherit a heart like His. Jesus' little brother, half-brother, same uh, mother, different father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and Mary. His little brother James was Mary and Joseph. And so his little brother James, who, can we agree, if your little brother thinks you're God, you've done something? Like if your little brother worships you as deity, there's some evidence in your life. And so in, in James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, pure and undefiled religion is this, which I've talked about often. He's saying this isn't tainted, this isn't self, self-serving religion, this isn't just talk like pure, true religion. Jesus' little brother. Pure religion, and I, and I talk about it all the time, but the reason I land on it in this sermon is because for the first time I saw the, the, the little phrase that, that James said. He said, pure and undefiled religion before our Father. He's like drawing from this reality that God is a father, God is a dad, he's adopted us, and he says, pure and undefiled religion before our father is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself unspotted by the world. He's saying if God is your father and God loves orphans, he's adopted us in. If God is our Father, we will have a heart like His. And He says we'll be concerned about those that are most uh, in need of help, which is always phrased in the Bible, widows and orphans. That's not just a phrase saying this is the sum total of Christianity. That's not what it's saying. It's saying we need to be concerned about those that are vulnerable. And nobody's more vulnerable than a widow or an orphan, especially in their culture. So when we... Are, are, are stepping into to this, this family and this inheritance that we have that the Father has adopted us, then we will begin to realize that we have a mandate to do on the earth what His will is and what His heart is. And part of that we're going to look at um, later today in so, an announcement that we have just pushing out the heart of God for adoption and foster in our city. Where does that come from? Where does the, the burden that we have to help serve widows and orphans in our community, where does that come from? It comes from the heart of God as our Father. Let me invite you to bow your head, close your eyes, and I want to pray that if you are a believer, if the Holy Spirit has led you to faith, that you would receive this, that you would be thankful for this, and maybe if you've, you've known this for a long time, that truly the Holy Spirit would make you just so aware and just feel what a blessed privilege it is to be called the children of God. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus for your salvation, to be adopted into the family, and all of these things are yours. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We pray to you. We pray through you as our big brother to God, our Abba Father. Father, we respect you. And Abba, we appreciate that you have given us access to crawl into your lap, that nothing is too big, nothing is too small for you. God, that we've been given access to ask for anything. 
God, I just, I, I, I'm thankful that you have given us the right to be called the children of God, for that is who we are. Father, I pray that you may cause some people to be born again today, born into your family, adopted in your family. I pray in these next few moments as we sing that we would truly worship, that you would be pleased with the worship that we give you. And all these things, we pray these together with one heart. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org. 